A complicated dish is a dish that has way too many techniques, way too many ingredients. That to me is not what I, I like. Le Bernardin, we don't serve grilled fish with olive oil and, and lemon juice. It's, more, it's much more than that. But it's nothing wrong about serving good olive oil, lemon juice, and a piece of fish perfectly cooked. So you can start with that, and then you can evolve and go a bit further and further. And as long as you are confident, you can go very far. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Before we get started, make sure to sign up for our new weekly newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at either the link in my Instagram bio, at Dan Rubenstein, or at thegrandtourist.net. You'll get all the updates on the podcast, along with news and exclusive stories from the worlds of design, style, art, and more. Think of it as my own little personal cheat sheet, and we have a lot planned for this fall. Now, back to the show. The art of cooking and fine dining is, to me, equal parts art, craft, design, and good old-fashioned business management. And I've always admired those who can elevate themselves to the very top of their game while also specializing in a particular segment of their field. My guest today has been elevated so much in food, he can't really get any higher. And with his latest series of books, he's helping the average podcast listener to elevate their game too. Eric Repair. Many of you will know him as the chef of the famed New York seafood restaurant, Le Bernardin, the spot he became part owner of at the tender age of 29, after the untimely death of his mentor. Or you might know him from his various TV appearances, such as Top Chef, or as the traveling companion to my own personal hero, the late Anthony Bourdain. More on that later. Like many of my guests from the world of food, he began cooking professionally at a very young age. And he cut his teeth working at Tour d'Argent, a centuries-old restaurant in Paris, followed by a stint working for the famously demanding Joel Robochon. But Chef Repair's story begins with his upbringing in Andorra, the tiny principality stuck between France and Spain, where he learned a bit about living the good life through amazing food. I caught up with Eric Repair from his offices at Le Bernardin to discuss his youthful obsession with cooking, preparing dinner for Joel Robuchon's dog, his latest cookbook, Seafood Simple, and what he thought of the recent horror satire film with Ray Fiennes, The Menu. I wanted to sort of start in the beginning. Um, you were born in France, but you're raised mostly in Andorra, which is a place I think Americans know extremely little about. So, what was your life like there as a as a young as a young man? What was it like to grow up in Andorra? So, I was born in Antibes. My parents moved to Andorra. At least, my mother moved to Andorra when I was nine, and I stayed from nine to seventeen in Andorra. Uh, going to Fr to France uh, from 15 to 17 to culinary school and back at home on the weekend and vacations and so on. Andorra is a tiny country nested in the Pyrenees in between Toulouse and Barcelona. And uh, it's beautiful. It At the time was 30,000 people living there. Now it's about 70,000 people. It's not much. Still so small. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's like Monaco, but for the Spaniards and the French on, on that side of the, of Europe. And, uh, it's a lot of lakes and rivers and forests 
five or six ski resorts. So you ski quite a bit and you hike and you do a lot of fishing in the lakes. It's, it's really a beautiful small country. And what is the sort of culinary uh, or the, the food culture like in Andorra? So Andorra, the official language is Catalan, then Spanish, then French. And for the food, it's very much the same. The influence comes from Catalonia, the region of Ca Catalonia, then Spanish, and then French. Andorra by itself doesn't have too much food because it's high in the mountains. The, the weather is pretty rough in, a, in winter. Temperatures go down quite a bit. It's a lot of snow. So you basically have potatoes in the winter and, and not, much not much else to eat. Uh, in the spring, you have... You can go, you can go fishing. So you have fish. You can go hunting in the fall, but it's not really much going on there. So Andorra imports a lot of its food from again, um, the region of Barcelona, which is very rich with vegetables and fruits. And how did your family wind up uh, moving there after? What was the, the purpose for that? My mother wanted to go to Andorra because, um, Andorra was very attractive at the time because it's a country that doesn't have tax. Okay, very. <laughs> that there's all the reason you need. So she was a, a businesswoman that ah. thought uh, it was a good idea at the time. I was nine years old, so obviously I, had, I didn't have really a choice. But uh, we loved the country, and uh, it was an adventure for me because I, I had to speak Catalan, I had to learn the Catalan, I had to learn Spanish at a young age. Today, Catalan doesn't help me much, but Spanish helps me a lot in the kitchen, as you can imagine. And uh, Sure, especially in New York. And uh, I speak French and now English, too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I heard that you, you learned cooking from your mother and that it made quite an impact on you. Um, what was a typical dinner like at home? So I learned from my grandmothers as well ah, okay. that were cooking soul food from their uh, original countries. I had one Italian grandmother, one from Provence. So very rustic, very delicious, but not very refined in presentations. Soul food. And my mother was very, very inspired by chefs from uh, fine dining. And at the time, we had Paul Bocuse that was famous in France and Michel Gerard and a few other uh, chefs that had the big name, at least in Europe. And breakfast, lunch and dinner was an experience at home. We will change the tablewares. We will change the tablecloth. Uh, we will have different flower arrangements. And then breakfast was a lot of um, uh, choices including uh, the omelette you like with the garnish that you wish or sliced ham or whatever you wanted. And then usually uh, during the week I was eating at school, but on the weekend I would eat at the house and it was appetizer, main course, cheese, dessert for lunch. And at night, same thing, appetizer, main course, cheese, dessert. And they were never repeating themselves. Oh, wow. Oh, sounds like a lot of planning for, uh, for It was a, a lot dinner. of planning. My mother was waking up at four or five in the morning to prepare all of that because she was very busy with her business. Sure. And I thought it was normal to eat like this. I, I, I really thought every child in the world was eating like me. I had no <laughs> idea how lucky I was. That is very lucky. And so, you know, how did 
did that inspire you? Uh, my next question was why, how you decided at 17 to go off to, to cooking school, but it now it seems kind of clear, but was there, did your parents approve? What did your, what was your family like when you said, I want to go out of school at, at a somewhat early age to do that? So I wanted to be, I wanted to be out of the school for sure. And I wanted to uh, go to culinary school and learn the craftsmanship of, of cooking. I wanted to become the chef that I am today. Actually, from age four or five, I had this vision of being the chef that I am today, which is in a, in a beautiful restaurant with a big team in the kitchen, all the equipment that is needed and so on. And that vision uh, was basically almost like an obsession. I had this really strong will to do that. And instead of studying, I was basically reading cookbooks at night <laughs> when I was going home. So then my grades were very bad. And at 15 is when the principal said, well, the grades are so bad, he has, he has to find a vocation, a vocation and, and do something. And I was like, yeah, good. Now I can go to culinary school. And uh, that was the beginning. And when you when you left school and you got your, was it your first job at uh, Le Tour d'Argent? Is that? The first one? Okay, so when you... Well, I did a stage in between year one and year two. Uh, okay. A two-month stage during the summer. That was very, very tough. Like I an was internship. Internship. Right. I was 16 years old. The chef was very physical, very abusive, very scary, looked like an ogre. Um, it was really, really tough, but I survived. And then my first real experience was La Tour d'Argent. And can you explain to people, you know, to Americans that, didn't, that don't maybe perhaps know that restaurant, you know, what that place was like when you, when someone would walk in? La Tour d'Argent? Mm -hmm. Yes. La Tour d'Argent is, at the time, was a three-star Michelin restaurant. It was only 18 three-star Michelin in France. It was an institution because... In 1982, when I started there, they were celebrating their 500-year anniversary. That restaurant was a symbol of royalty because the king was uh, going to La Tour d'Argent. Uh, the restaurant was burned during the revolution, rebuilt it a couple of times. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Babette Feast. Yes, I do. It, so Babette Feast, the character, the lady who's the chef, is actually the chef of the Café Anglais. And Café Anglais was La Tour d'Argent ah. with a different name. Ah, okay. And La Tour d'Argent kept on the side Café Anglais, but it, the iconic name is La Tour d'Argent. And it's a building that with six floors, the dining room is on the top floor, sixth floor, with the kitchen next to it. It's a beautiful view of the Seine River and uh, Notre Dame de Paris. It's a very, very special restaurant, beautiful and a classic. And when you started there as your first job, were you like prepared for the working world of the realities of actually working in a kitchen? When I started there, I thought because I had very good grades in school, I graduated and I was, a, I thought I was a good cook. I thought I would, I would impress them um, at my, with my age, 17 years old and coming there and like, being a bright star, but it was the contrary. Uh, I walked in that kitchen and I was the youngest by far and my knowledge was very light <laughs> to be in the kitchen of a three-star restaurant. And uh, actually, 
after three minutes, I cut my finger and uh, I had to ask for a Band-Aid. And uh, uh, then they asked me to make uh, an Hollandaise sauce, which became scrambled eggs because uh, I didn't know really how to uh, control the heat. And that was a failure. And then they asked me for Cherville and I didn't know what Cherville was. And at that point, I realized I better put my head down and work really hard and try to be invisible and uh, and stay there. <laughs> How long did that process take for you to kind of like, you know? It takes about six months to be comfortable and to understand the different tasks. Also, they were rotating us in the kitchen. We were a bunch of young guys, but they were all old, older than me. But it takes about six months to be a bit folk, to yeah, to feel good, and then. Um, and then you change again and you change again and you you really never at ease because it's it's always challenging after one year you can say this is my house this is my kitchen and then you know you you kind of famously went to uh hamin right uh Jamin, Jamin. Yes. sorry i'm pronouncing it like it's something else that's quite fine Jamin, yes uh, excuse me uh, under joel uh robochon and yes what was that like because he's he has you wrote a memoir and you described this experience um how did you get that job and 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 why did that happen so jamin was the restaurant of joel robuchon he was considered at the time the best chef in the world by basically all the european magazines and he had three star michelin and he, the restaurant was very tiny 40 covers 25 cooks in a kitchen working from 6 a.m. until 1 on the morning. Uh, you had basically five hours to go home, take a shower, sleep, take another shower and come back. Uh, we were we were really working hard. That kitchen was very, very tough, very physical. We had no space. We were like touching each other's shoulders because we were so many cooks, but it was needed for the food that he wanted. He was a genius in many ways, and his food was incredibly beautiful but incredibly delicious at the same time he was a very very tough chef because very demanding on himself and therefore very demanding on his team the difference in between Robuch joel robuchon and the other chefs at the time in europe that it was joel robuchon was not violent physically he was not kicking you in the butt or punching you in the shoulders or throwing things at you but and he was not a screamer either and other chefs in general were screaming at you all the time and insulting you. He was not like that. He was very different. But his words were really going to your heart like a knife. Like, for instance, I was very passionate about making sauce. And I was in a fish station, which helped me much later on to, to be uh, the, the right chef for Le Bernardin. But I was making sauce every day. And I, that was my job toward the end of my stay with him. And... He would look at me and say, repair, you know, you have it or you don't have it. You will never be associated. And that will kill you. You will be like, I work all the morning. I, I put all my love and effort in it. And he's telling me that I'm a loser. Um, so he was finding for everyone, it was a customized, nice comment that will break your heart. <laughs> was he someone that would like, you know, tell you one bad thing and then one good thing and kind of keep you on the edge? It was interesting because it will start very softly to criticize you and it will become more and more and more intense. 
And two hours later, you will have forgotten your mistake, and suddenly it will it will become extremely intense and and remind you the mistake you have done two hours before, and 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 relentless and relentless and relentless, and then that will it will it will last for a week or two. So a week later, it will say. And you remember what you did last Monday when you gave me the red mullet or, or the striped bass undercooked or overcooked? You remember that? How can you? How can you forget? You you sabotage my kitchen, and, and so it was really like sticking to your skin forever. Yeah, and and I heard that you had to cook food for his dog, essentially. Like Not necessarily always me, but we were cooking food for his dog. He was taking a break. He was a very hardworking man. He was taking a break to go have dinner with his family. He had children, and and he would come back after his early dinner, and he would. And that was our break too. We would sit down and have basically half hour to to eat something. Very often we didn't eat. We didn't have time. But when we had time, we would sit and have dinner, and he would give us a call and say. You know, I can't believe you cut the the meat for the dog too big, or it's too small, or I find some um, <laughs> I find some stones in my salad. Or I find it was every day something, and at the end we were kind of joking, but it was not a joke because it was pressure all the time under pressure. Well, first of all, what kind of dog? It was a very tiny poodle, I remember, and we basically didn't dislike the dog. But I think sometimes the dog was not hungry. He didn't want to eat the, the food. And Chef Robuchon was blaming us for the dog not, not eating. <laughs> How can I tell you? <laughs> Did you ever comp- contemplate giving up? No, I, have, I had been very emotional many, many times. I was 17 like I started a, uh, when I started at La Tour d'Argent. I was 18 and uh, 19 at Robuchon. I was speaking to my mother every day on the phone when I was 17 and even when I was at Joël Robuchon, every day I was explaining to her how, how hard it was. And she was very supportive and she was saying, stay there, stay there, stick, stick to it. You, you, you're good. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm going to make it, but I have to, I have to tell you it's really rough. Before we return to Eric Repair, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. Ann Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs. The product designers at Ann Sachs have traveled the world to source a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, each with their own unique and dramatic veining and movement to create that organic, elegant feel in interiors. The company has just opened its newest slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. The inspirational new flagship location in Long Island City is a combination showroom and slab gallery, showcasing the full assortment of tile and slab collections, as well as in-stock vanities, lighting, and plumbing fixtures. For more information about any Ansacks, tile, or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansax.com. And, you know, after that, you uh, there was a period when you went to D.C. and you worked at the Watergate Hotel. Um, where How did that happen? And, and did you, you know, that's a big, that's a big step to kind of go to from, from France to D.C. Well, um, at Joël Robuchon, I worked for one year 
And then I was called to do my military duties, which were mandatory at the time. And I felt it was my luck to get out of that kitchen and take a break. But Joël Robuchon said, you know, I have connections and you can cook at the Elysee, which is the equivalent of the White House, for the team that cooks for the president of France. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to do that because he's going to send me whenever he wants and then I'm going to owe him and I'm going to have to come back. I want to have options. So I refuse and I say, no, I have, I have to do my military duties where, where I am asked to, to do them. Then I came back for two and a bit more than two years as the chef poissonnier. So responsible for the fish station. And at the end, I, I gave him six months notice. So by Christmas, I said, in June, I would like to leave. And at the, in that time, you were waiting for the chef to tell you where to go. And he said to me, where do you want to go? And I said, I would love to go to Brazil. And he said, no, I am not sending you in vacation. So then I said, well, maybe you can send me to Spain. And he said, but Andorra is almost Spain. Don't do that. So I said, well, send me anywhere you want. I don't want to be in France. And he said, why don't you go to America? And I said, oh, doesn't sound bad. Why not? So he made some calls and uh, I came to the US, started in Washington, D.C., not speaking a word of English uh, at Jean-Louis Paladin, which was in the Watergate Hotel. And what was that? What was uh, what year was that? That was 90. Uh, 1989. And I read that actually during this first trip you had to D.C., where you bought a copy uh, of a book about Tibet and that kind of introduced you to Buddhism. Um, and it was kind of a, a, a an accidental purchase, an accidental uh, impulse purchase. Um, tell me about that part of your life because you've talked about how you've had you know issues with just being you know pressure and anger and and how this has really impacted your life. Is that still true today? Oh, for sure. So I have I find this book before I leave France at the last minute before embarking uh, the flight. And I read the book and I'm very interested. And then that year, the Dalai Lama uh, got the Nobel Prize for peace. And I, I read his speech of acceptance and I, mean, I was extremely, extremely touched and inspired by what he said. And then I asked my mother to send me some books in French because obviously I didn't read English. And I, I read his books and I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense for me, the philosophy of Buddhism. Uh, and I started to read and educate myself with a different vision. And Buddhism speaks to me at the time and still today. And I went to his teachings and then I went to different teachings. Uh, when I say his, his holiness, the Dalai Lama. Uh, then I went to different masters teachings and then it became for me a way to um, to practice to be a more compassionate a better person uh, practicing loving kindness as much as i can and having a different vision of the world uh, buddhism is a philosophy it's a religion and it's a, it's a science at the same time that quantum physics really can explain uh, a lot, and we're not going to go into the quantum physics theory right now. But uh, it's something that changed my life for the be for the better. But uh, I do not try to convert the team. <laughs> I find a secular way to 
to bring what I learned that is positive uh, to the team. And then we we are all the same, all equal. It doesn't matter where they come from if and which religion they have. It doesn't matter. But for me, Buddhism has, has been very, very important and very helpful. Are you someone that meditates? Are you someone that has to take time to do that? Yes, I wake up every morning, maybe around six, before six, and uh, I meditate, I do rituals, I study. Once a week, I have a teacher, he's a monk, Tibetan and Nepalese. Nepalese. Uh, Once a week, we have a teaching together, and then I study quite a bit every day. So from six o'clock until 8.30, the house is basically sleeping or 8, 8, 8.30, I have time for myself to do that. And it's very helpful to start my day like this. And then my family doesn't really um, participate at all or shows interest in what I'm doing. And uh, so I have my meditation room and I'm happy and I go to the meditation room and they respect that very much. And uh, we all live happily. <laughs> and what was the crowd there like at uh, in DC? Kind of, it's, it's you know, it's changed so much uh, and continues. So DC to... was extremely boring for a guy who was twenty four years old at the time. Uh, I was like, this is like crazy. Like people don't go out. Don't at two o'clock. It's like the last call. I'm leaving the kitchen at midnight. How can I have time to? to enjoy i was bored and i was coming to new york a little bit on the weekend sometimes and new york was booming and crazy and in in 89 new york was really really a good scene for young people and it's still i think today a good scene for young people but obviously it's not my scene any longer Um, but washington was boring i love what i was doing with jean-louis paladin he was extremely creative and uh, his food was amazing. He was probably the first chef in America to create or, or, or invent the relationship between the farmer and and the chefs, farm to table, right? Nobody was doing that. But on afternoon, he would take his car and go to Maryland and get soft shells. And then he would go to Virginia and bring back hams and bacon. And then he would go to other farmers and bring vegetables. And his food was absolutely amazing. And I was very, very impressed. My challenge was I didn't understand anything in that kitchen for quite some time. He was French. How did you so I, thought he, I thought he would speak to me in French and he refused. He spoke to me in English only. And uh, his frustration was obvious because he would say to me, send, send, send the food, send the food. What are you doing? Send the food. And for me, I was like, what is he saying? What does he want? (laughs) So it was tough, but he was a very kind man. And after after the service, we would laugh and joke. Uh, But during service was difficult for sure. And, you know, at at that point, you you kind of leave there and go to to New York. I mean, especially where you are and have been for quite some time, or was there a period in between before? I left Washington. I had a visa, a student visa. So after my student visa, uh, I went to David Boulay downtown in Tribeca as his sous chef, because I knew David from Joel Robuchon from Jamin. David came and was in training uh, for a few weeks and uh, was in my station so we became friends 
And they, when he got first star in the New York Times in 1991, David called me and said, why don't you come and help me? I, I really need some support because we have first star. It's a big deal. And I stayed with him a little bit. And then I had the opportunity to start at Le Bernardin as the chef de cuisine under Gilbert Lecoz and, and, and Maggie Lecoz, the brother and sister that own the restaurant. And uh, I st I'd stayed with David about eight months. And then I came to Le Bernardin and uh, it was in June. And now uh, we are 2023. So it's 30 33 years, 34 years, <laughs> 32 years, sorry. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, Gilbert and his sister had opened the restaurant in Paris first, I believe, and then and then it came to New York. Um, what was he like? You know, I, 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 from what I've read that he's been, you know, he was a miracle worker with seafood. So what did you kind of learn from him in those early days, you know, working shoulder to shoulder? He was very interesting because he was an autodidact. He never really trained with anyone except his father that had a restaurant during the summer in Brittany to make a, to make a bit more money because father was a fisherman but was difficult with the budgets. And uh, his sister, Gilbert's sister, was in a dining room at age 13, 14 serving people and he was helping his father. And then he never really got trained. He, and uh, they opened Le Bernardin in Paris in 1972, closed, came to Paris and came to New York in 86. And I joined them in 91. And when he hired me, he hired me as the chef de cuisine. And he says to me, look, uh, this is my style. This is what I do with the, the, the fish. I'm very, very particular about the freshness of the ingredients, especially the seafood. I go to the fish market every day for years and years and years at 4 a.m., 3 a.m. You don't have to do that any longer. I taught them how to handle the fish the way we we want them to do. And uh, I want you to focus on keeping our philosophy, which is the fish is the star of the plate and bringing your expertise from classic training in La Tour d'Argent and working with Joël Robuchon and the creativity of, of Jean-Louis Paladin. And I basically give you freedom to do whatever you want. And then I'll support you thousand percent. And from that day on, he let me succeed and make mistakes and succeed and make mistakes, always supported me. Mm. I mean, it, it sounds amazing. like from, from what we've said, that's the first time you've probably ever heard that before. Yes, for sure. Point, for someone was, just to say, well, with, Dave, with David, uh, I had a relationship that was uh, very civilized. Mm. and uh, But Gilbert Lecoz was really like a mentor that was very nurturing, but without being uh, fatherly. Mm. <laughs> he, you know, he was, he was teaching me, but giving me a lot of freedom. And I, I had the, the safety net was him. He was still in the kitchen, but he wouldn't intervene. So, for instance, I give you an, a quick example, but the captains didn't want to write on the ticket the time when they would order the food. And I wanted them to say, at seven o'clock, I'm taking the order. So, in the kitchen, we will know we have 10 to 15 minutes to send the first course. And then we will monitor in the kitchen also writing the time when the appetizer goes. And we will know more or less when the main course has to be sent. Captains were like not accepting that at all and i refused to 
take care of their tickets if the time was not on it. I said, no, you, you don't, you don't want to put the time on it? No food. So the captains will go to Gilbert Lecoz and say, the young kid is, is very rebellious and is imposing on us things that we don't want to do. And Gilbert Lecoz said, you have to deal with him. He's my choice. He's the chef. You don't want to deal with him? You can go work somewhere else. Why did they refuse? It seems like such an obvious thing to... I think for them was a cultural change. I was extremely young. I was the youngest of Le Bernardin, of all employees. So in the kitchen, my challenge was to discipline that kitchen that was looking at the young kid. And they were like, with this cute face, we're going to kill him. <laughs> and and they, they had no idea how well-trained I was to take the pressure. <laughs> and, uh, and the waiters were the same. They were like, who is this kid coming here to tell us how to do? We are successful. We are already a four-star. We are in, in many magazines and in the newspapers everywhere. I know everybody's speaking about Le Bernardin. We don't take we don't take pressure from this kid or we don't, we're not going to listen to him. Mm. We're going to actually kick him out. And I said, at one point, I said, well, it's going to be them or me. <laughs> I mean, if over, over seemingly, uh, you know, that's uh, over, what was, I mean, when you look back on it, it sounds really small, but I mean, it also like, it probably made a mark in the sand, no? Yeah, I was fearless. I had no problem at all to be extremely tough. I actually, I was way too tough. I was abusive, verbally abusive, and I was uh, really making mistakes. I had I, I had to take a break at one point and realize that I was miserable, the team was miserable, and we were losing a lot of stuff because my lack of diplomacy and understanding uh, how to lead by example and how to, to not uh, inferiorate the staff. So that was for me um, a wake-up call. But Gilbert Lecoz let me go to, to the edge and make the mistakes until I realized my, on my own that I was totally wrong. And then basically almost overnight, I reversed my way of uh, managing team. And, and Gilbert, uh, you know, died tragically very young and you you took over. Did you have you know, speaking about what you just described, did you have, were you had cold feet about taking over such a place in, in totality like that at that age? So I started in 91. He passed away in the summer of uh, 94, three years later. And therefore, I was already the chef un under his supervision, but I was very comfortable managing that team. And... Uh, Maggie Lecoz came back to Le Bernardin. She was very emotional. She lost her, lost her brother. I, I lost my mentor and a dear friend, and I was very emotional, and the team also was in shock. But I never questioned it. Uh, I went to her office. She called me. She said, would you like to to stay with me and, and we move forward? And I said, absolutely. It, no, it, no question asked. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Amazing. And so, you know, what kind of, legacy i'm curious you know you, you touched upon this before but if you could explain the legacy from gilbert and the original le bernardin to even up to today 30 years 30 plus years later uh if someone could time travel and go to the the first day it opened in new york and then time travel and come here and have a meal today would they would they still be able to draw a line a, a connection between the then and now for sure uh the techniques I'm using are very different 
because Gilbert didn't master those techniques that I learned with, again, great chefs like Joël Rebuchon, for instance, or Jean-Louis Paladin, or the chef of La Tour d'Argent. Uh, I use also um, influence from my roots, which is Mediterranean, south of France, Andorra, which is Spanish influence. And then I traveled quite a bit since I live in New York. I have been to Asia. I have been to South America. I have been to Scandinavia and many other countries. And my food or our food, because it's a teamwork today with the sous chefs, is really inspired by experience. And uh, that makes the food very different in many ways. But at the same time, we kept the the same philosophy. The fish is the star of the the plate. Fish is very delicate, texture-wise, flavor-wise. Few seconds and your fish is overcooked. Few seconds and your fish is not cooked. Uh, you have to be very delicate with what goes in a plate. You cannot overload the plate with garnishes and different sauce and so on because you kill the, the delicate, the delicacy of the species that you are cooking. And every species are very different from one uh, to another. Tuna is different than halibut. Halibut is not a codfish. Codfish is not a lobster, as we know. And you have to treat them uh, very carefully and be a great technician. So that will be the common thread in between Gilbert and I. It will be that uh, delicacy that we bring into the plate to elevate the fish, not not caring so much about the presentation on the beginning, not caring about nutritional. I don't care if you have starch and fibers. Of course, I care later on in the process. But on the beginning, the only thing we care about is how can we make this piece of alibut better? And after that, it's the exercise is reversed. We say, okay, well, we're going to make it look good. And then what do we bring to be nutritional? But on the beginning, it's purely about flavors that enhance the halibut. Before we return to Eric Repair, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. For more than 25 years, Fort Street Studio has been creating enduring carpet designs and heirloom qualities that are hand-woven and hand-knotted in beautiful fiber combinations that are luxurious yet natural and renewable. As pioneers of the painterly, non-repeating aesthetic in modern rug design, originating from watercolor art, their creative team at Fort Street Studio continues to honor the artists and artisans of the past, while innovating for the future. The works are customizable in color, size, and shape, which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers specify them for their clients' interiors. Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like, hand-knotted wild silk and wool silk blend carpets, that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. And in 2021, Rizzoli published the studio's first book entitled A Tale of Warp and Weft that chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And if someone, if, if a young chef comes to work with you uh, in the kitchen, maybe they worked at any other, you know, Michelin star, uh, one, two, three Michelin star restaurant, what is the number one thing you find yourself having to correct to be like, this is the way we do it here? Or this is our philosophy we, here? We have a lot of young talents that come to our kitchen with different experiences. And I ask them to be open-minded and I'm not asking them to forget what they learn with other chefs 
and some techniques are, are very universal. I'm just asking them to be understanding and respectful of what we do. And then if they play the game, we, we explain to them in detail along the way when they evolve. We explain to them that everything has a reason. Nothing, uh, nothing is just a gesture or, or technique just to show off. Everything has a, has a meaning. We try to teach them, and we do that successfully, actually. One thing I have to tell them right away is that they have to shave every day in our kitchen. Because for me, or if they have a beard, they have to keep it very clean, clean cut. Um, because the kitchen is an environment where you have to show immediate uh, discipline on yourself and cleanliness and so on. So if they have long hair, I don't care. They can put a net. They can put, a, of course, a hat. Uh, they, they have to be clean on themselves, on their jackets, and their hands have to be clean. But they have to also show uh, a certain discipline and make the effort to shave themselves every day if they, if they don't want to keep a, a, a very clean, short beard. <laughs> Well, that's great. Um, and in this sort of post-pandemic era that we're in, you know, with all of the challenges that fine dining and all restaurants seem to go through, um, what is sort of business like for you today and sort of the industry of running a major restaurant um, like Le Bernardin? How does that, like, what keeps you up at night that makes you say, I got to really meditate this tomorrow? What do you, what what's like racing through your mind that you, you know, that is, um, if you could help people understand what's important to you today. Sure. Well, we have constant challenges every day in restaurants, as you can imagine, lunch and dinner. It's it's never uh, the same and you have to adapt very quickly. So by nature, we adapt and I sleep pretty well at night. <laughs> COVID was very, very tough because we were closed and then we were open at 25% capacity, and then it was a 50% capacity, then we closed again, and then we reopened. It was very difficult to find staff when we reopened. For some reason, a lot of the young people who are working in the restaurant industry left New York, went back to their states, with find jobs in the different states, or went to their families. Uh, it was very, very difficult in 2021. Last year, 2022, we had basically a full team because all the management came back at Le Bernardin. All the people with experience came back. So we had that plus for us. And the clients came back. And clients were very eager to support the restaurants and the, the hospitality uh, industry. So they were doing the best they could to come out as much as they could, spend as much money as they could. And that was really helpful at the time. So 2022 was a fantastic year. Now we are in 2023. We have really a great team. Of course, we have challenges every day with some individuals, but that's part of any company. Le Bernardin has about 170 employees. Today, we are, what, uh, end of July, for lunch, we were packed, full dining room. And then tonight, we, we are really doing extremely well. We are packed as well. Very difficult to get a table, even in a summer. The year is extraordinary for us. And I speak to a lot of my friends. A lot of them are very, very happy with 2023. 
and I see some people struggling depending of, of where they are located and, and depending of their clientele. But it's, to my knowledge, it's a minority. Most of everyone uh, really s does really, really well. The biggest challenge we have is inflation. That has been uh, really, really important in the country. But today it looks like it's, it's going back down. Uh, and that's very helpful. Has the client's expectations changed? Well, clients, when they came back to restaurants, were so happy that you could you could burn the fish; they will <laughs> they will eat it and say thank you. <laughs> but um, today, those days are over, obviously, and 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 they should be over. Uh, the clientele is very demanding because they have very high expectations. And they should be demanding and have expectations. And uh, we have no problem with that. It's exactly like pre-COVID when people were coming to have something special as an experience. And we are here to deliver that special moment and meal for the people that come here. Uh, I, I have to ask you, because um, I'm just dying of curiosity, did you see the movie The Menu? Yes, of course. Okay, what did you think? I mean, not of course, but yes, I well, saw yes. it. Okay, what did you think? I thought it was um, powerful in many ways because it reminded me some bad memories uh, from when I was in France, not in America, but in France. It's a, like dark satire that makes fun of excess that have happened in many restaurants that bring excess formality in experience, especially in fine dining. And uh, a veneration of the chef that is not healthy. Chef is not God. Chef is uh, is your brother who has a responsibility of being a leader. And uh, you shouldn't have fear of the. You should have respect for the chef, but not fear of the chef. And if you're a client, you have a voice. The chef is here to please you, um, and you are not enslaved by the chef so uh, the menu is uh, is intense and is extreme but it's a mockery of what some restaurants have done thinking they were creating fine dining fine luxury it's not uh, necessarily a place where you are as a client um, scared or intimidated or fear uh, the reaction of the chef because you have an allergy or you don't like a certain ingredient or you don't want to follow the direction of the chef. It's your experience and we're here to cater for that. And and fine dining should be fun for everybody. You're coming to celebrate usually and uh, or you're coming to find an experience. People come at Le, at Le Bernardin to close a deal to speak business, for romantic uh, dates, for celebration, and you name it. And our job is to read your mind and to make sure we deliver this experience to you. And at the end, actually way before the end, you should be laughing and you should be loud if you want to and you should be having fun and it's the way it should be everywhere in, in, in restaurants. People should have a very pleasant experience, not an intimidating or boring experience. And, you know, you have this follow-up book called Seafood Simple coming out, um, which I think is follow-up to your last book, Vegetable Simple. 
Um, and what was the concept behind this new series? It may not have been a series at first, but um, why this type of book now? What what was behind? Why use this concept of no, focusing in on on very sort of you know basic and simple um, essentials, essentially? So vegetable simple was an exercise that was very different than seafood simple in the sense that it's no chapters, but it's organic. You open the pages and you start with snacks and then you see soups and appetizers and then it's richer dishes and finally some desserts with fruits, which are not vegetables, but it's basically plant-based. Uh, so that was a nice exercise that I liked to do at the time. I really wanted to pay homage to vegetables and fruits and I thought... Why not? It's not because we have a seafood restaurant that we cannot do that. And then seafood simple could sound like an oxymoron because cooking seafood is not simple, except if you buy the book, of course. <laughs> but no, but to be serious, it's, it's interesting because I basically broke down the book in chapters that are following the different techniques that are appropriate for certain species. Uh, like I said before, you don't cook a lobster the way you cook a halibut and you're going to cook a halibut the way you cook a tuna, piece of tuna. So you have chapters for the major techniques, which are grilling, broiling, steaming, uh, sauteing, roasting, marinating, curing, and so on. And in those chapters, we really, really show you in pictures and guide you through the text uh, second by second almost and it's like having uh, having me next to you basically and you cannot make a mistake it's not possible if you follow what is in the on the pages you will have the result that you see on the page which is the final picture of the dish and what would you say is the most common mistake you hear a layman make with fish in many mistakes, it starts by shopping. People do not know when fish is fresh and not fresh. And when they start to cook the fish at home, it stinks the house and it's very fishy and disgusting and nobody wants to eat. So people are intimidated a little bit. And it's few tricks. It's, they are so basic. It's no rocket science. So we're showing you how to shop. And then a lot of people have the tendency to overcook the fish. And soon as you overcook the fish, it's dry, it has no flavor, it's it's not pleasant, you don't know what you're eating, and people say, I don't like seafood. So we sh we're showing you the tips again, which are very, very basic. Again, no rocket science here. And uh, other mistakes is that very often you see too many things in a plate with the fish. So you see the fish and you're going to see some potatoes and then you're going to see some string beans and then you're going to see other vegetables and mushrooms and then you're going to see a gravy and you're going to see and then the fish disappeared and it's it's like eating a plate of i don't know what but not seafood and if someone were a layman and wanted to read this book what is the first fish you would suggest someone start with to kind of really master oh. it doesn't really matter uh what matter is the freshness of the fish so what what is interesting is that you can choose any species that you like to eat or like to cook for your guest. And then we take you by the hand and we are together bringing you to success. And, and there was an interview you did um, with the Harvard Crimson uh, where you said that 
you know, you loved cooking fish and that you maybe were not as not as adept at doing things like pastries, for example, um, because pastries are like a science and cooking fish is about creativity and, and there's a sense of improvisation. And I'm wondering what kind of advice would you give to those, you know, either working in a kitchen uh, professionally or just at home really trying to make a four course meal for their family? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you improvise with cooking? So cooking, if I can make an analogy, is like jazz. You can improvise quite a bit. And pastry, it's extremely precise and scientific. And pastry, you have to follow uh, the directions and you have no freedom to get out of it until you potentially become an excellent pastry chef. Uh, after 20 years of experience in a restaurant, then you can break the rules, but you cannot break rules in pastry. In cooking, you can really, uh, when you are comfortable with the basics, which uh, we are teaching in Seafood Simple, for instance, when you have mastered the basics, which are simple, really, at the end of the day, uh, you can really improvise a lot and compensate uh if it's too much acidity, you can bring more richness in the dish and then you can balance the sauce. And if it's, I mean, salt, if it's too much salt, you're doomed. Good luck. So you have to be cautious. But except that, in cooking, you can, you can really improvise a lot. And, and depending of the season and depending of the quality of your ingredients, you can play and compensate and make uh, something that is delicious and also you c can have consistency by taking a lot of those liberties. And, and if you had a sort of a Sunday evening uh, with your family and you're just didn't have much time to prepare, uh, what is the sort of a go-to Sunday meal for you like at home? It all depends on the season. In the winter, for sure, we, we start with a soup and very often I like to make a stew but in the summer, it's much simpler. I, I probably will start with a salad and vegetables that I find uh, inspiring and, and delicious. And then something light, uh, probably a, a seafood, or sometimes it's purely vegetables. Sometimes we don't even uh, need meat protein. And I barely touch meat in the summer. Really? Yeah. No, you're not a barbecue person. <laughs> I am a barbecue person, oh, okay. but uh, barbecue vegetables and fish. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, I have to ask you, you know, one of my personal heroes is uh, Anthony Bourdain, even though I'm not from the world of food necessarily, but from the world of writing and journalism. Um, I was wondering, you know, now that it's been a while, is there a, a little fond story that you have that brings a smile to your face when you think about your time with him we have a, we we spent quite some time together as friends and also sometimes working together um and we even had, had a show that that was called good and evil and we went to 35 cities in the u.s and we were sold out in every theater as well so we did a bit of i mean i did a bit of tv with him he was doing a lot of television as you know uh, I did a little, bit of, a little bit of comedy in theaters with him, and then we spent a lot of time together as, as dear friends. We, we like to prank each other. So he will 
do things to me that will make me very uncomfortable at times. And then I will wait and have my revenge because soon as he will walk into a car or walk in, uh, into a plane, he will fall asleep because he was always jet lag or traveling. Sure. And, and as soon as he will fall asleep, I will wait for him to open his mouth and have the saliva starting to fall on his shirt. And I will take a picture and post and say, uh, I'm learning transcend transcendental meditation with Anthony Bourdain, the great master, and put the picture of him like that. <laughs> so this is one of the many things we used to do together, pranking each other. So in all of your experiences, you know, I'm wondering, is there anything left that you've yet to master in your career? I think I will study all my life. And, and uh, because I'm Buddhist, I believe in many lives, which it's kind of convenient in many ways. <laughs> uh, so I am, I'm going to study for quite some time in this life and the other ones. <laughs> it's endless. You know, the search, of, search for perfection is not perfection. The beauty is in a search. Thank you to Eric Repair, Becca Parrish, and everyone at Le Bernardin for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Till next time.